to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Runaway by Corey Breath. This folk pop artist currently based in Tip City is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Tonight is our second episode in an occasional series we are calling Mob Mentality. Mob actions are a mystery by themselves. It can be hard to understand human behavior and how individuals can be whipped up into taking actions that they'd probably never do if left on their own. This episode is a further mystery, however, because a few years after the mob took their vengeance, one of the men who led the mob made a stunning deathbed confession. He said he was the killer and had helped organize the lynching of two innocent men to cover up his crime. Some people believed that late-hour confession. Some did not. I suppose we'll never know. By the way, since lynching is often associated with black suspects, and many of our mob mentality episodes will make that distinction, I wanted to clarify that in this story, the mob, the murder victim, and the three suspects were all white. For this tale, we're going back to June 23rd, 1872, in Mercer County, straddling the townships of Liberty and Hopewell, just a few miles from the Indiana border. It was a Sunday morning, and Mary Arabelle Secor, called Belle by friends and family, headed off to church and Sunday school. She was the daughter of Susanna and Joseph Secor, although her mother had died two years earlier. She also had three older brothers and a sister. Belle was 13 years old, and at the time, she was staying with John and Sarah Sitterly on Tama Road. Newspapers referred to the Sitterlies as her foster family. That relationship wasn't explained further, but it wasn't unusual for older children in rural communities especially to live with families that were closer to town so they could be within walking distance to school or maybe live with families for whom they did some sort of work or chores. Whatever the case, Belle was just a a two-and-a-half-mile walk to Liberty United Brethren Church, and she made it there that morning just fine. About noon, she started her journey back home. For part of the walk, she was accompanied by a large group of parishioners, including her grandfather, Strauss May. 
and as they walked along, the group thinned out as people broke off to go to their own homes, and her grandfather reached his house at the township line and Erastus Durban Road. Then Belle was alone. She crested the hill on Tama Road, likely aiming for a path that went a short distance through a strip of woods. When Belle didn't make it home by three o'clock, there was some discussion about where she might be, but it was assumed she had stopped somewhere, perhaps visiting some girlfriend, or maybe she decided to stay for dinner at her grandparents'. But when night fell with no sign of her, her foster family called for a search party. The searchers had no luck that evening, but the next day they started anew, beginning at the chapel and working their way down the street, knocking on every door in every farmhouse to learn what neighbors knew. About a half mile from the Sitterly home, a searcher found Bell's parasol fan, lying in a field near the woods. A few feet from that was her Sunday school book. That sent a searcher named Joseph Steen into the woods, and there, some 50 yards from the edge of the road, was Belle. She had only been there a day, but some free-ranging hogs had found her and had already begun devouring her body. Local farmers did an examination right there and determined she had been raped and her skull crushed. A bloody club was found nearby. As a matter of fact, they would bury Belle the next day next to her mother at Liberty Chapel Cemetery in the village of Rockford. And authorities would have to go and exhume her body so they could do a more official autopsy. Belle's death was disturbing on another level. According to the History of Van Wert and Mercer Counties, published in 1882, a few days before her death, Belle had told friends she'd had a horrible dream of impending danger, and her friends had to talk her out of her fears. Now, Belle had a boyfriend, and he was briefly arrested, but quickly proved to have an alibi. A couple other local lads were picked up also, and then let go. Then, a few days later, authorities had zeroed in on five men. First, Mercer County Sheriff Thornton Spriggs and a small posse went to Fort Wayne's business district, where they jumped out with pistols and arrested a 21-year-old Scotsman named Alexander McLeod and his friend Andrew Kimmel. They took McLeod and Kimmel back to Salina, Ohio, with no apparent concern that they had crossed state lines to do this. Sheriff Spriggs was interested in McLeod and Andrew Kimmel because several people had told them the two had been in town the weekend of Bell's murder. They were peddling tinware, and people recalled they had seen them near the church an hour or two before Mary was attacked. Spriggs learned the pair had been staying with Andrew Kimmel's uncle, Henry Kimmel, and so for good measure, the sheriff went there and arrested his three sons, 16-year-old George, 17-year-old Jacob, and 19-year-old Absalom. Now, years after this whole affair, there was an account that said one thing that almost sealed McLeod's fate right away, 
is that before they told him why he was arrested, they'd taken him to the crime scene. He was angry at being in custody, looked around the field and woods and said, why have you brought me to this bloody spot? His captors thought he had slipped up and confirmed that he knew a bloody act had occurred on this spot. But later, historians would suggest that whether he was guilty or not, McLeod, a Scottish immigrant, was simply using the term bloody as an expletive. Anyway, the men were interrogated for a couple of days and all attested their innocence. McLeod explained flecks of blood found on his handkerchief as being from a nosebleed. But news reports said they also found a ribbon on the bridle of his horse that was believed to belong to Bell. Now at some point, and stories differ here so much, this is only one version, Andrew Kemmel pointed the finger at his buddy McLeod and at his first cousins, Jacob and Absalom. And after further questioning on the 5th of July, Absalom reportedly broke, confessed that he, his younger brother Jacob, and that tin peddler McLeod had done it. He said they were returning from church that Sunday when McLeod asked if any girls traveled west. Jacob said yes and headed for the area where the girls walked. After they found Belle alone, they took her into the woods. Each man raped her once, then McLeod a second time, after which he hit her in the head with a large stick. Later that night, McLeod left the Kimmel house and returned home, saying he'd gone back, found the girl was still alive, and finished her off. 16-year-old George Kimmel then gave his own confession, saying McLeod and Absalom did it. Later, during a court hearing, he recanted his testimony, claiming two deputies had taken him to the woods and, quote, threatened to kill me in three minutes if I didn't tell them all about the matter. So George offered up Absalom's name since Ab, as his brothers called him, had implicated Jacob. Now, 17-year-old Jacob Kimmel also changed his testimony from saying he had no knowledge of the crime at all to saying McLeod, that buddy of his cousins, had mentioned he'd killed the girl, but that he, Jacob, certainly wasn't there when it happened. Modern researchers don't know what to make of Absalom's confession, which seemed the most damning because it was the most specific. They say Absalom was at the very least of low intelligence and maybe even mentally challenged. They say in no way was he capable of the language used in the long written statement that he signed. Perhaps that was a point Absalom's attorneys were trying to make when they went to court for a hearing on the matter and objected to the confession, saying its contents were given under pressure. The court was filled with excited citizens, including Bell's family, and Bell's brother, Charles Secor, even leapt toward the attorney at this point and had to be restrained. Someone yelled, lynch the murderers, and the gallery cheered. The defense attorney continued, asking the judge for a change of venue. By now, the crowd in the courtroom was so agitated, the judge sensed a riot about to start, 
and he quickly called off the hearing and postponed it to the next day. The next day, a Saturday, court was convened again. And again, the spectators were vibrating with such anger, the judge cleared the courtroom and postponed the hearing yet again. Now on Sunday, a group of men met near the scene of Bell's murder and, according to the Cleveland Plain Dealer, quote, Steps were at once taken by otherwise respectable citizens to mete out that justice which they were fearful would be defeated by the chicanery of the law. This was going to be a highly organized lynching. Runners were selected to ride out to area communities and summon the area's men and have them meet at the fairgrounds. By early Monday, county officials knew enough to know they needed help. They telegraphed the Ohio governor for assistance, but things were going way too fast for the militia to respond in time. Businesses in Salina closed for Monday, anticipating what was to come. The Cleveland Plain Dealer gave this account of the arrival of the mob. Quote, About half an hour before noon, a cloud of dust rapidly approaching from the west heralded the approach of the Avengers, and in a few minutes, a body of perhaps 200 horsemen in compact order, accompanied by two or 3,000 followers, marched into the village and surrounded the hall. Now the sheriff warned his prisoners of their approaching doom, even as he locked the door of the jail. He appeared in an upper window and made a plea to the mob. But someone entered the jail through a window and unlocked the door so the others could sweep in. About 150 or so people stormed the jail, reached the sheriff, pinned his arms to his side, and took his keys. The commander of the mob unlocked the cell door and announced to the prisoners, Alexander McLeod, Absalom, and Jacob Kimmel, your time has come. McLeod, it was said, was standing tall, cool, and confident, calmly protesting his innocence, while the Kimmel brothers hunkered in a corner with abject fear. The three men were taken to a two-horse wagon, put inside, then began an 11-mile journey to the scene of the crime. That's where they intended to lynch the trio. It was like a funeral procession, some 200 horse riders leading more than 2,000 people on a long, slow march. Now, the property where Bell was killed was owned by a man named Mr. Solderly, and when the mob arrived, he was there to meet them and turn them away. No, gentlemen, he said, that ground was made sacred by the blood of little Bell Secor, and the carrion carcasses of her murderers shall never pollute it while I have strength to prevent it. This took the crowd aback at first. Good Lord, that walked an awful long distance to make this hanging symbolic. But Mr. Solderly made a convincing argument. The mob leaders consulted and came up with another idea. They marched to the home of Henry Kimmel. They would hang his sons in the pasture across the street from his home and make the family watch. From an upper window, the mother of Jacob and Absalom and their sister Molly 
witnessed the crowd putting the gallows together under a tree where the Kimmel children used to play. One end of a long, sturdy sapling was tucked into the fork of an oak tree. The other end rested on two upright braces. Three ropes were dangled from the cross pole, each rope furnished into a noose. The wagon was driven beneath the tree. Stand up, the wagon driver said, and the three men rose to their feet. The Cleveland Plain Dealer gave this vivid description of the prisoners. McLeod was in his shirt and pants, and upon his feet wore a pair of socks. His attitude was collected and defiant. The natural ruddy flesh of his cheek glowed as brightly as if no danger menaced his life. Absalon Kimmel wore his coat, pants, shirt, vest, and boots. His face was the hue of death and a nervous twitching of the lips and shudders that swept over his frame told of the fierce agony that raged within him. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Remorse and fear had done their work, and he was a pitiable object to look upon. Jacob wore his ordinary clothing and seemed to be fighting his fears with a more manly heart than his older brother. Then, to the crowd's complete surprise, Bell's brother, Elias Sikor, made his way to the center of the mob and shouted that he had something to say. They paused from putting the nooses around the men and quieted to hear him. And that's when he pleaded for the life of the 17-year-old Jacob. Elias said, I do not feel satisfied of his guilt, and I ask as a favor that you spare his life. If he is found guilty, let the law punish him, but it would be worse than murder for us to do this if he is innocent. The leaders conferred. They had to make a lot of last-minute calls today. Apparently, they were somewhat aggravated at how these carefully laid plans were falling apart, and witnesses said they exchanged some heated words. But in the end, they removed the third noose and took Jacob down from the wagon. McLeod and Absalom Kimmel were asked if they had any last words. McLeod insisted he'd never even seen the girl and that the confessions the mob was relying on were coerced by deputies. He said, If I must die, I must, but innocent blood will flow. I commend my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and my soul to God. 
At this, some in the crowd started tossing out suggestions that they delay the hanging so McLeod could be tortured until he agreed to confess. But after a while, the suggestion was hooted down. Now, the ends of the long ropes were not attached to anything. They were hanging to the ground. The plan called for some selected men to hold the ropes steady. That way, when the wagon moved forward and the prisoners lost their footing, they would be suspended in the air and the noose would do their job. But the idea of holding a rope while a man on the other end dangled and struggled must have lost its appeal because the men assigned to do this wouldn't pick up the ropes. New volunteers were called for, and six men, all identified as being from Indiana, stepped forward and seized the ropes and waited and waited. According to correspondence on the scene, this was followed by a long and painful silence, as if nobody wanted to be the one to start it. But finally, a stern and sharp now came out of the crowd. The wagon was driven forward and McLeod and Absalom dangled from their nooses. The crowd emitted a collective gasp. Absalom didn't move. Witnesses said they believed he had fainted before the wagon was even moved. McLeod struggled, drawing his left leg up as if looking for perch. Then his body relaxed. It was 10 minutes before 4 o'clock on July the 8th, 1872. The mob left the bodies to dangle for about 20 minutes, then cut them down, where they fell to the earth with a dull thud. The crowd dispersed quietly, while those holding Jacob Kimmel took him back to Salina and handed him over to the sheriff to deal with. Later, authorities would decide not to indict Jacob, or anyone involved with the lynching. Interestingly, while I've read quite a few stories of lynchings, and newspapers generally did not support such mob vengeance, this one seemed to strike a chord. The plain dealer had a correspondent who signed his account of the lynching with the initials J.R., and he ended his story this way. My opinion, found on observation, is that assaults upon unprotected females in this community have been, by this action, most effectually checked. And while many condemn the principle upon which the punishment was administered, I doubt if there is within a radius of 40 miles, a single individual who seriously regrets this exhibition of the popular sense of justice. One can only wonder what that author thought a couple of years later, when this story took a shocking turn. In 1874, a man in a Denver, Colorado hospital who was dying of tuberculosis had actually moved to Denver from Fort Wayne, Indiana, seeking a cure, asked to speak to a priest. And there, on his deathbed, he confessed, not only to killing that little girl in Mercer County a few years earlier, but for leading the mob in an effort to deflect any attention away from himself. Here is the statement that was taken from him, in his words as they were reported, quote, in this, my dying hour, 
and in the full hope of pardon by confessing the deed that is weighed upon my mind like a death pall. I am the guilty wretch who outraged and murdered Miss Sicaro near Salina in the summer of 1872. Heaven knows what hellish motives prompted me, but at the time my brain was on fire from drink. I was veritably a madman, past the power of control. The hanging of McLeod and Kimmel was murder. I was one of the mob that executed them. I urged them to do it, for I felt it necessary to secure my own safety. I know now and feel that in acting as I did throughout this horrible affair, I committed sins of most grievous character. I hope God will pardon me and that the families of McLeod and Kimmel will be relieved of the stigma of dishonor now resting upon them. I have but a few moments to live, and with my last breath I avow the truth of all my statements. This statement was signed by Thomas Bradwell Douglas. Purportedly, the confession was placed in the Douglas family Bible and kept there for several years until it was discovered and finally shared. One couple that heard about the confession and believed Douglas was Mr. and Mrs. Pat Callan. Pat Callan was a deputy sheriff at the time of the lynching and helped defend the jail against the mob. He said he was never convinced of the guilt of McLeod and Kimmel. Callan said his brother Dan was a defense attorney at the time and tried speaking out for the suspects, pleading with the people to let the law do its investigation first. But the crowd turned their pistols in his direction and ordered him to shut up. Mrs. Callan, meanwhile, said she thought she knew who Thomas Bradwell Douglas was. She said there was a man named Douglas who was digging wells around Liberty Center the summer that Bell was killed. She'd seen him working on the wells. She said she also remembered when she saw that well digger raise his voice in the mob and urge them toward their deadly mission. She knew his name was Douglas and couldn't help but wonder if the Douglas from Denver was one in the same. Mrs. Callan said her own brother, Joe Kaiser, was also in the mob. He helped to fix the sapling to which the nooses were hung. After the lynching, she said, Kaiser drank himself into an early grave. Someone who did not believe the deathbed confession was John Laurie, who was but a boy when the lynching occurred, but who grew up to become the Mercer County Prosecutor. In the future, each time the confession came up, Lori would try to strike it down and call it a hoax, saying he believed McLeod and Kimmel's defense attorneys had somehow put the man up to it and personally wrote the statement that the dying man gave. But news reports never followed up Lori's claim by asking why a man would sully his own name by taking credit for such a horrible offense. Not just one, but three murders. From what I could tell, Lori was right about one thing. No one could produce the actual statement signed by Douglas that was reportedly found in his Bible. So, if you wanted to believe it didn't exist, you had that argument on your side. 
Mary Annabelle Secor has not been forgotten. A couple of books have been written about her murder, including one just a few years ago called Outrage in Ohio, A Rural Murder, Lynching, and Mystery. It was penned by David Kimmel, a descendant of Henry Kimmel. Now, there are three crazy anecdotes I have to insert here. First, for many decades after her death, people reported activities in the cemetery that suggested Bell wasn't completely gone. A story in 1926, that was more than half a century after her death, it quoted people who said they heard whispering when they approached her large tombstone, that sometimes lights could be seen dancing around the grave, and that a mysterious bearded stranger had planted a rose bush over her that occasionally bloomed in winter. After hearing about the deathbed confession of Douglas, who had lived just a few miles away in Fort Wayne until his move to Denver, many people convinced themselves it was Douglas who had planted that rose bush. Anecdote number two. There was another victim to add to the death toll of Mary Annabel Secor, Alexander McLeod, and Absalom Kimmel. As the mob was headed to the crime scene where they planned to lynch their captives, they passed a house where a young man named William Duran lived. Duran, according to the story that has been passed down, had gotten a girl pregnant. The baby was stillborn. Durant is said to have hid their moral mistake by tossing the dead infant to his hogs. And that deed had haunted him. As the mob neared his home that day in July, he convinced himself they were coming for him to make him pay for what he'd done. Rather than wait for their noose, he left the farmhouse ran across a field into some woods, and then slit his own throat with a razor to avoid the mob's justice. The word of Durant's suicide reached the mob after they were finished with McLeod and Kimmel, and reportedly some of the mob stopped by on the way back and carried Durant's body back to the house for his family. Durant, meanwhile, was buried in the same cemetery as Bell under a white stone and an inscription that says, His earthly parents found him submissive day by day, so meek to all around him, so ready to obey. Now, the third anecdote is about what happened to the bodies of McLeod and Absalom Kimmel. In that 1926 story I found of Salina area residents recalling what they remembered about this whole affair, the Dayton Daily News interviewed a resident named Dan Mayer, who went with the lynch mob. He testified as to what happened to their bodies. The families weren't permitted to get their remains back. Instead, the mob gave them both to medical personnel who they knew would dissect them. Absalon Kimmel's body was taken to Fort Recovery, where a Dr. Blizzard took possession. It was said when the doctor had learned all he could from the body, he buried it in a place called Milliken's Woods. As for McLeod's body, his was delivered to a Dr. Cole in the village of Rockford. When Cole was done using it for dissecting purposes, he put it in a box and dropped it into a creek. Sometime later, another doctor who knew it was there 
Mayor couldn't remember what the guy's name was, went and retrieved it. Then he wired up McLeod's skeleton so he could put it on display in his office, where it remained for years. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Corey Breath was born and raised in Chillicothe and currently lives in Tip City, where he creates original folk, Americana, and pop music. He's been singing for 25 years, playing guitar for 15, and sharing his songs all over the Midwest for the past 10. Corey is also a high school Spanish teacher and a full-time worship leader with his wife, Mary. On his website, Corey said, I absolutely love sharing in the joy of music. I love to tell stories. I love to connect with people. I love sharing my heart. Music makes that possible. You can keep up with Corey on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and of course on his website, CoreyBreathOfficial.com. Well, let's have another listen to Runaway by Corey Breath, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Run away, don't you be run away I am not afraid of your worst instincts Far away, don't you know I'll never be far away I'm not a mountain scape, lost in the distance I'll always be by your side no matter how hard you try to run away I'll always be by your side No matter how hard you try to run away Run away Don't you be a runaway I am here to stay with you through the bad dreams I will chase, don't you know if you run, I will chase I won't let you face your fears without me I'll always be by your side, no matter how hard you try to run away I'll always be by your side, no matter how hard you try to run away
Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.